White hair is still the mountain king, but see his messengers return from salt and sand. Curlews have always been my absolute sort of fixation and obsession. Return from salt. Walking across, you know, moorlands and areas of complete wilderness and then hearing that call, it was it was spellbinding for me. And the taste of peat upon the tongue. I can go on about curlews till you fall off your perch, David. <laughs> The grit stone is a thing within. It's just, it's just wonderful. I, I, I love them. The heather, honey. I think they're a wonderful bird, and I think that we are so blessed to have them here. Between the valleys, brittle reeds and scorched black moorlands, hushing bed, they cry the changes. They cry the changes. Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to a very special episode of Trees A Crowd. Today, the 21st of April, all of us at Trees A Crowd HQ, read me and my editor Ollie, and a number of our friends, some of which you'll recognise, are celebrating World Curlew Day. Some of us are even celebrating by world premiering brand new music inspired by the winged wonders themselves. That would be Bella Hardy, and that would be the hauntingly beautiful song you have just heard. No one's ever heard that before. But for the rest of us... To get us started, to tell us what the day is, and indeed what a curlew is, I would like to hand you over to... I'm Mary Colwell. I'm a producer and a writer, and um, and I love curlews. <laughs> well, why... Okay, first question, most important question. What is a curlew? A curlew is the UK's largest wading bird. So it's like the size of a mallard duck, but it's got quite long legs and a really long, arcuate, beautiful bill. Um, really quite long. The female's bill is longer than the male's and they use it to stick into the mud. So that you, you, if you see one, you, you won't mistake it for anything else. It's, they're, they're big and pointy and rounded. Do you think it's the bill itself that makes them so lovable, iconographic and special to people? Or what is it for you that makes them so important? It's a combination of things, I think. It is the way they look and the bill is absolutely essential to that because it's so sculptural. You feel like you want to sort of run your fingers down. It's so smooth and lovely. But also it's their call, obviously, because as soon as they open their bill, they come out with this most haunting, evocative, beautiful call, or a series of calls. In the springtime, there's a rising, circling, swirling bubble of notes that comes up. It's the bubbling mating call, sort of display call. But in the winter as well, they have a call which is like um, a curly, which is where they get their, set their name from. And that's much more like a sort of arrow firing out across the mudflats. It's very evocative of wild places. 
I started Royal Curlew Day off the back of my 500-mile walk for curlews in 2016. By the end of 2015, because I was a producer in the BBC Natural History Unit, I was beginning to realise just how serious it was for curlews. We were getting lots of information into the office. I was working in the radio department at the time. And they were saying how serious it was. Numbers were going down and down and down. Um, and I just wanted to find out why, because I loved them so much. I just wasn't satisfied with just these figures appearing on my desk. I wanted to understand what it was that was causing this problem. I also wanted to know why people loved them like I did. What is it that is so attractive about a curview? Mm -hmm. And it was just a flash. I'm going to walk across Britain and talk to anybody who'll talk to me, ranging from scientists and conservationists to bird watchers to hunters to anybody you could think of and find out what it is about the curly why it's going and what it means to people and that was the essence of the walk and when I got back from the walk I realized just how much trouble they were in and well curly day seemed a, a way of keeping people's minds focused once a year mm -hmm. on this fantastic bird and all species of curly there's eight species of curly around the world and two have already gone extinct and ours are being upgraded as we speak to uh uh, upgraded in the sort of threatened stakes so they're now as threatened as jaguars so they, they are really are in trouble and i'm right in thinking that it's the 21st of april is around the time that they're nesting and laying their their new broods yes it is that's the average the first laying egg the first egg appears on the 21st of april in western europe but it is also the feast day of the saint of curlews uh, did you know there's a patron saint of curlews i did not it also makes me wonder if there's a patron ah. saint for every single bird in existence ah well there could be if we looked hard enough <laughs> so who is um, the patron saint of curlews a, well it's a very famous saint um saint bano oh yeah i know him well, well we know. go way back yeah <laughs> no you don't <laughs> saint bano was ever heard of saint bano. <laughs> um, so bano was a sixth century abbot and um he was very famous for bringing christianity to the west of wales uh -huh. he was renowned as a preacher and he was renowned for replacing severed heads. I think he replaced four in his lifetime. Uh, one Sorry. of his cousins... For uh, replacing his, severed uh, heads? Yes. She turned down a suitor who was wielding a sword, and he cut her head off. And, uh, and he uh, put it back on again. So he's quite useful. Like that. He sounds a very so useful <laughs> Very handy to know in the 6th century. Simbeno <laughs> um, was also a very good preacher, and legend has it that he was sailing out from the Lynn Peninsula in the west of Wales over to Anglesey, and he dropped his book of sermons into the sea, and a curlew flew out from the shore, picked it up, and took it to some rocks to dry. And Beno was so grateful to the curlew, he blessed it and said, may you be forever protected. And his feast day on April the 21st. How about that? So why do people love curlews so much? Over to Sir John Lawton, ecologist and president of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, who I spoke to for this very podcast back in the hazy, lazy days of summer 2019. I, I think they, as a group, they're marvellous birds. There are, there are nine species in the world. Uh, I've seen four of them, uh, including our own curlew, of course, which is the quintessential curlew if you're British or European. <laughs> um, and they're evocative of uh, wild places, both in their wintering grounds and their breeding grounds. They have the most marvellous calls. So if you're up on the top of the North York Moors or the Yorkshire Dales in the spring and the curlews in song flight it's just wonderful uh, and it's hard to imagine those places without curlews 
Have you seen any this year? I guess not quite yet. It's still a bit too early. Oh yes, yes yeah. I have. Um, the the uh, I was up in the uh, in the in the Dales in in March, and they come back quite early. Some of them, and there were curlers already up in the Orchard Dales above above uh, Summer Water in March. They, the the males come back, and I have curlers. I'm very lucky. You remember where we sat in the garden last time? If you go a mile and a half due south of, of there, you come to a, a place called the Tillmire, which is. Tillers Meyer, it's an Anglo-Saxon site. It's a site of special scientific interest, and I have we have breeding curlews. I can hear, you know, go down there on my on my bike for my release from house arrest and have my, my exercise. <laughs> and there's a male curlew singing there at the moment. Oh, fantastic! I think you're probably the only person that I'm speaking to for this special who can actually get to a curlew. Everybody else, because I've spoken I get to, to a curlew within within half an hour's walk. Yeah, yeah. That's just showing off, John. <laughs> it's not. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> As you can hear, most of the interviews for today's episode are recorded over the phone from everyone's respective COVID-19 lockdowns, so apologies for the sound quality in places. But just imagine how magnificent it would be to be, as John says, up on the North Yorkshire moors right now, listening to those incredible birds. Well, as fortune would have it, we've sent our correspondent, Amanda Owen, a.k.a. the Yorkshire Shepherdess, out onto the moors on your behalf with a bona fide Yorkshire curlew backing chorus. Well, I'm right at the top of Ravenseat, right at the very top of Swaledale. At the moment, I'm standing 1,700 foot above sea level. The sun is setting. I'm looking out across the moors over into Westmoreland, over Wild Boar, and down this dale and across to Rogan's Seat. The most glorious thing is the quiet, that absolute stillness, all that you can hear, apart from my sheepdog, are birds, lapwings, and curlews. What is it about those birds? They, there's an air of mystery about them. They have a bit of an aloof kind of look. If I was going to be a bird, I'd want to be a curlew because they say to me, elegance. And also, they're slightly mysterious. That call that they have, it's quite eerie, quite haunting. But I don't... Their nature is that they do seem to be quite a shy and solitary kind of a bird. Obviously, we're just in the middle of April, so um, I haven't actually found a curlew nest yet. But this year particularly, there's been a lot of curlews appear at Ravenseat, which I'm fabulously pleased about. Because believe it or not, you become familiar with their haunts, where they hang out at. So there's quite a few places where I know curlews will nest kind of like familiar faces. I believe that they do live to a great age, so I can see no reason why it wouldn't be the same birds coming back and nesting on their same favourite patches. But this year, there's definitely been younger birds. You can kind of tell by, by the way they behave that they're babies, I suppose, back here to breed for the first time. So, for me, the curlew... It really means something to me. For me, it's not just a sign of Yorkshire. It's the uplands. It's the open spaces. It's the need to have headspace. It's the need to be solitary. It's, 
it's the way it seems to be a loner that it kind of shies away from company, that it is so nervous and elusive. But it's not just rural habitats where one can be lucky enough to see or indeed hear a curlew. Speaking to me from lockdown in Spain, here's the urban birder, David Lindo, with a few of his more surprising sightings. I've seen curlews in urban environments many times, actually. Um, In London, uh, my local patch is Wormwood Scrubs. On one day, there was um, firstly a wimbrel that uh, passed by, and then literally the same afternoon, um, a curlew came through. But in previous years, I've I've had curlew on the football pitches. Now, Wormwood Scrubs, the the topography is not that exciting for you know, at first glance, because basically over half of it comprise of, um, comprises of football pitches and rugby pitches. And then you have a, an area of rough grassland, which is no more than 14 acres. And the whole area is surrounded, predominantly surrounded by a very thin strip of woodland. And there's not a, a lick of water anywhere. So to, to, to get waders of any sort is a miracle. But because we're on the flight path of birds heading to and from uh, London Wetland Centre, um, it kind of aids us. And there's been a couple of occasions when I've actually gone out onto worm and scrubs in the morning and come across a curlew feeding on the football pitches, which is like, whoa, that's like incredible. But one of my best urban experiences of um, curlew was going to Washington Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, which is, you know, fairly urban. Sure. And seeing a roosting flock of 600 curlews, you know, in such an urban um, environment was absolutely breathtaking. It was incredible. I've never seen so many there. So, you know, it's exciting. And I think, you know, obviously the the curlew, we all know, is declining um, nationally and perhaps even internationally. Um, So to see a curlew flying over an urban area for me is one one of the highlights of my year if I, if, I, if I do get to see one. For me, when I hear a, a curlew calling, I have the same emotion as many people who live in the areas where they breed. It evokes that feeling of wilderness and, you know, total kind of, you know, wild environment, um, you know, away from everyone and all that sort of stuff. So I have the same emotion when I hear um, them calling. Do you remember the first time you I heard see- one? Yeah, I kind of remember because when I, it's quite easy actually to remember because I um, have been interested in wildlife all my life. And from an early age, I was told that um, you couldn't see nature unless you went out in the countryside. And then I had no one to take me. So that's where the urban birding thing was born, really, because I was kind of unwittingly born into just watching stuff around me. But when I did actually eventually get out, um, I remember at the age of 13, going youth hostling to Scotland, that it was a major trip, you know, getting on the sleeper train from King's Cross and ending up in Inverness. It was so exciting and not sleeping a wink. Um, and then when we ended up somewhere in Speyside, I think we were staying there every morning, going out on our daily trips and walking across, you know, moorlands and, you know, areas of complete wilderness and then hearing that call, it was it was spellbinding for me because it was like, oh my, that's that's what it sounds like. This is incredible. And then you see them flying around. It was very, it's just a gorgeous thing for me at the time. You know, it's really kind of, you know, set in my memory. So why do curlews deserve a special day all to themselves? 
Over to Patrick Laurie, farmer, conservationist and author of the book Native. They're extremely important. They're extremely important culturally. They're important to me and my family just because I think they've probably always, they've always been around us. The sound of the call means a huge amount to an awful lot of people, but I think probably the Curlew's real knack is they make it personal. They don't make it, it it's not something that you stand off and think, isn't that a lovely sound? It seems to speak to you, specifically you. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know quite what it is. It's not necessarily a happy sound. It's not necessarily a sad sound, but it's, it's, a, it's a desperately striking sound and a really, really important part of the countryside. So why are these birds under threat? Rick Simpson, the CEO of WaderQuest, a charity supporting shorebird conservation. It's primarily loss of habitat in, in almost every case. There, there, there are, there's Eskimo, Slenderbill, Far Eastern, Bristle-Thighed, Eurasian, Long-Billed, and Little Curlews, and two Wimbrels. So of those, you've got two critically endangered. Far Eastern Curlew is endangered. Bristle-Thighed Curlew uh, is vulnerable. Eurasian Curlew is near-threatened. And then you have Long-Billed Curlew and Little Curlew, both of which are of least concern at present. And then the two Wimbrels are both of least, least concern. Uh, the Far Eastern Curlew is definitely because of habitat destruction in the, um, in the Yellow Sea principally, but certainly across its flyway. So we know that when you destroy habitat, the birds don't go elsewhere. So if you look at the Yellow Sea, we have 60-70% of the intertidal zone, which birds like the Far Eastern Curlew and Norman's Greenshank, Spoonbilled Sandpiper and many, many others rely on, you can only assume from that or extrapolate from that that 60 or 70 percent of the the population that relied on that can no longer do so and therefore is not with us anymore and so this is what is driving a lot of these declines certainly in that part of the world the bristle-fied curlews problem is that there are not very many of them Um, the peculiar thing about them is that they they winter on the oceanic islands and uniquely, they, when they molt, they molt all their flight feathers at the same time, the primaries. So they're unable to fly. They become they get stuck flightless. There. So, well, yeah, if, if you live on a, a remote oceanic island or winter there, historically, for thousands of years, that was not a problem no. until we arrived and introduced things that made being flightless a problem. And of course, this is, this is having a, a detrimental effect upon them. Eurasian curlew, you will have heard an awful lot about. You know, that's a lot of that's to do with uh, habitat destruction, so they can't breed, and breeding, of course, is what maintains population. And is that because of is that because of human uh, infrastructure projects, or is it just environmental oh, change, or a mixture of both? All of those things, all the all of the above. We are destroying natural habitats. We are changing our own habitat that we've created and so you've got great swathes of the countryside that used to be ideal for your curlews and and, and lapwings and so on and so forth which now no longer are they're just pretty much sterile green spaces so there there's a whole variety of reasons why these things are happening but almost entirely man-induced i'm afraid so what can be done to try and protect the curlew I'm Jen Smart and um, I'm Head of Species for RSPB England. Curlew is one of our highest conservation priorities in the RSPB just because of the sort of perilous state of the, uh, of the, of the declines that have occurred for the species, but also because um, the UK has a really high responsibility, global responsibility for the species. So, so 
so we've got about 27% of the global population in the UK. So yeah, it's really, you know, we've got a big responsibility to make sure that we don't lose this species, basically. And so what is the problem at the moment? Why are they losing their habitat? What's the greatest threat to the curlew at the moment? So habitat change is obviously a big uh, part of the story. But what we also know now is that, that many, of, um, many of the species that nest on the ground in the curlew is a ground nesting species. It lays its eggs in a sort of scrape in the grass. We know that lots of those species are actually threatened by um, predation, so, so higher abundance of, of predators, generalist predators, a whole range of species that are just looking for food. And because these birds nest on the ground, it makes them vulnerable to those effects. So it's a combination, we think, of uh, either direct habitat loss or changes in the remaining habitat, and, uh, and then on top of that, higher level of predation. And it's predation both of their eggs and their chicks because um, they lay their eggs on the ground. But, but when the chicks hatch, the chicks are flightless for about 40 days. So you've got this sort of um, double whammy with these ground nesting species. They've got, you know, effectively, if you're a curlew, there's about two and a half months where your, your breeding attempt that year is, is, is vulnerable uh, to, to predation and other things that can destroy those nesting attempts. Why do we think the predation's gone up? Do we think it's because foxes and badgers and the like have been pushed out of urban environments and have gone into these moorlands? Or is something stranger going on? Is there just an increase of a population that, as a result of climate change or the likes? Or why, why is the predation going up? This is, this is one of the biggest research gaps we think we have now, is, is understanding the cause of the increase in generalist predators that we have. Um, and obviously RSPD and others are trying to come up with um, plans to try and figure out what's going on in, in this respect. But there's lots of theories about what might be impacting on them. Sure. So, for example, uh, you know, lots of land management. You know, um, one of the things we think might be important is the, the release of game birds. So over 50 million game birds are released in the UK every year, you know, into the environment. And, and undoubtedly, some of those game birds fall prey to predators. And, they, you know, it could be that that's boosting these populations. Um, so there's there's a lot of things going on, lots and lots of things. So as well as trying to fill that research gap, what else is the RSPB doing to try to protect them? So there's lots of things we've been doing. So um, so for the last five years, we've been uh, running a big uh, a big ambitious uh, research program called our Curlew Trial Management Project, and that's about understanding the land management practices that are required to reverse the declines in curlew. So we've set up this um, this big sort of landscape scale not experiment, but landscape scale study, where um, on, on some of our sites we're, we're doing nothing and monitoring what's happening in the curlews, and on other sites we're intervening in terms of uh, trying to improve the quality of the habitat and trying to reduce the numbers of, of predators in those landscapes. And then we're monitoring the effects to see whether on the sites where we've intervened are curlews doing better than they are on the sites where we haven't intervened. So that 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 big program of research is is, is big. I mean, it's each of the sites are 10 kilometers squared. So they're big areas of land where we're trying to do stuff. And that's that's drawing to a close now. So we're just starting. We should have been doing the last year of field work this year, but of course, um, COVID has impacted on that. So I suspect we'll we'll write up that piece of work now. So that's that's been about how can we manage the land better for curlew. Um, but we're also doing, we've got our own reserves that have curly. So we've got 25 of our nature reserves that have curly, about 400 pairs in total. So we've been doing a big audit of our nature reserves to make sure that we're doing absolutely everything on those reserves to help our curlews. Patrick Laurie again. They're a very long-lived bird. They can live for sort of 30, 35 years. Um, lots of the problems that we're now seeing for curlews happened 30, 35 years ago. 
Um, and the birds are very sight faithful. They always come back to where they were hatched. Mm -hmm. The problem is that they've just stopped producing young birds each year. And so when we look now, we suddenly think, oh, my God, where have all the curlews gone? Actually, the reason why they've gone is is to do with stuff that we were doing 30, 30 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So actually, it, it, so it's a really slow it's a really slow kind of like that metaphor of the oil tanker trying to turn around. Um, we kind of didn't really know what we were doing at the time. And I think probably we might've thought we were getting away with it. And it's only now we're really catching sort of ca reaping the, reaping the damage that we sowed yeah, quite a long time ago. So what exactly are you doing to try and help the biodiversity of your land and, and the poor curlews? So I work with Galloway cattle, um, which are incredibly robust, uh, well put together, old fashioned traditional cattle. Um, they do really well on rough ground and they have a particular knack for eating certain grasses, which can be really thick, really invasive. Um, left to their own devices, um, a lot of these moorland habitats, which curlews depend on, get completely overgrown and swamped. There's a feeling that uh, nature does best effectively when we withdraw from it. And, and, I, and I agree with that. And I see there's all sorts of really interesting and positive cases to be made for that argument. But mm -hmm. Um, there's a property that I'm looking at at the moment where all farm management was, was withdrawn 40 years ago uh, and it's now being effectively classified as being in un unfavourable condition for conservation and uh, Scottish Natural Heritage are insisting that this land is put back into agriculture because it, it, it needs it the needs kind to be of management that it has form. Absolutely. Um, Galloway cattle are really well suited to do that kind of management and they get right in there and so I've taken on, I'm renting this, this, this place that hasn't been grazed in 40 years. It's a nightmare. It's a real disaster. It's a jungle to try and work through. But um, I've got cattle going on there in a month's time. It's a huge piece of work, a huge risk. Uh, I'm really anxious about it. But a big part of me thinks it's, it really has to be done. Someone's got to take the hit and get this done if this place is going to be up and running again. One of the organisations responsible for jostling government policy in the right direction when it comes to the delicate balance between agriculture and conservation is the Wildlife and Countryside Link. Their chief executive is long-term friend of the podcast, Dr Richard Benwell. Well, mostly we're a policy uh, outfit, so we, we're thinking a lot about things like future farming policy and how you can uh, design a system that will be able to support ground nesting birds of all kinds. So... You know, one of the big, big problems for species like curlew is the loss of wet meadowlands and grasslands and the sort of uh, messy mosaic of, of old-fashioned farmland that supports that kind of ground-nesting bird. And we want to make sure that in future, um, farmers are helped, uh, paid to support that kind of habitat to, to allow species like curlew to, to recover. But some of our members are much more involved actively. So, uh, um, there are brilliant groups like WWT, Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, who uh, do amazing curlew conservation work um, along the Seven Estuary and uh, head-starting curlew chicks. So they sort of um, bring eggs uh, from the nest uh, to to conservation sites that uh, help to rear the little ones and then uh, release them later down the line to make sure that more of the chicks survive. So some of our members are doing amazing practical stuff. Do you think um, in many ways the curlew has sort of become a representative for uh, the different land use policies that are in place at the moment? It has. It has because it's such um, an evocative bird. Uh, you know, at those first times when folk 
go to the beach in the winter and see big flocks of of wading birds most of them uh could be could be anything but the curlew is unmistakable uh, and the sound that the curlew spreads across the landscape is just such a, an evocative cry that uh, it's become sort of a, a poster child for uh, for the risks really of, of um ground nesting birds and uh, and endangered species of all kinds in the UK because it has been a really, really tough time for curlews lately. So that's the conservation side of things, but why is it that the curlew in particular has become a symbol for conservationists nationwide? Here's Rick Simpson of WaderQuest again to talk a little more about the mythology surrounding this beautiful enigmatic bird. You would have heard, I'm sure, of St. Bano, who, who, who had his, his um, prayer book saved by a curlew. But the St. Patrick is also uh, associated with the curlew in that when he, he left Ireland and when he reached the Isle of Man, which is where he was heading for, just before he got a thick fog came down and he became disorientated, he didn't know where he was, but he heard the call of a curlew which gave him an indication as to which direction to go, because that curlew would be on land. Uh And so he headed in that direction. And the the story of St. Beno is that he blessed the curlew and made its nest now hard to find. And exactly the same um, result is supposed to have happened with St. Patrick. And when he got there, he, he, he was so pleased, he blessed the curlew and said, from this day forward, your nest will be hard to find, which, of course, we all know it is. Well, double double blessed by saints is always a good way to hide something, I find. Well, it is, but it, it, it doesn't seem to have done them much good latterly, does <laughs> it? It doesn't seem to have helped a great deal in the modern world. There's another story also that involves probably the Eskimo curlew. Okay. And that involves um, a chap called Christopher Columbus. Heard of him. By all accounts, he'd been sailing for 29-odd days in the direction of finding the new world, or so he hoped, and... Allegedly, they had about a month's worth of food left on board, so people were beginning to get a bit restless, saying, well, look, you know, perhaps it's time to go back and all that. Um, whereupon, in the sky, a massive flock of birds appeared, the, the, the type that you imagine when you think of passenger pigeons. Anyway, this, this bunch of birds flew by, and Christopher Columbus and his cohort said, well, look, these are, these are land birds. We must be nearly there. And they were heading in a direction in which the boat was not heading. So he changed course and followed what he thought was the direction of these birds. And that is why he ended up in the Caribbean and not in Florida or, or, <laughs> or, or the, um, the Carolinas, where he would have been going if he had gone straight across. Sure. And, and so it's quite possible that, that the Eskimo curlew changed the course of history. And I think there's a sad irony that if, if it was responsible for Christopher Columbus discovering the new world, it was that discovery that was, you know, sort of rang the death knell for the, the curlew because it was the arrival of the Europeans which ultimately wiped them out. So all a bit sad, really. Here's Dr Richard Benwell again, followed swiftly, different bird but no other appropriate pun available, by Lucy Walker from Britain Peers Arts. A good curlew fact that um, that you might not have heard before is is about the curlew sign. Have you heard the curlew sign? Go on, tell me about it. So this is a, a piece of musical notation uh, that was invented by Benjamin Britten um, uh, for his uh, piece of work called Curlew River. 
Uh, well, Benjamin Britten was a composer of the 20th century, probably the, one of the best-known British composers, and he lived in Suffolk nearly his entire life, apart from a few years in the States, well, three years in the States, and he was up and down from London now and again, but he really lived on the Suffolk coast for the whole of his life, so it's from 1913 to 1976. He was inspired by, by nature, by the sea, by the natural world, um, by night time sounds, and he always chose to live in a kind of in small towns sure. and increasingly in the country as he got older. He was born in Lowestoft, lived in Snape, and then lived in the last nearly 30 years of his life. He lived in Aldborough by the sea originally, and then that got a bit too sort of public, and then he moved, he retreated about a mile inland into a much more rural spot, sure. which is where the Red House is, which is, which is a house in normal circumstances you can visit. As I understand it, he used to sort of take long, sort of winding walks along the coastlines, which you would sort of call, call as composing walks. He would yeah. sort of take stimulus from the natural world. Yeah, that's right. He would he would compose in the mornings, and then he'd go for composing walks, thinking walks, uh, where he'd walk along the seafront and compose in his head. And then he would go back and write it all down. So he didn't compose at a piano so much. It was it was um, the the work of composition tended to take place on these long walks between. Aldborough between his house and later on between the Red House and the sea, he'd walk through um, the marshes uh, and the reed beds, uh, which have, to this day is, is a well-known bird reserve. I think it's fair to say that he was often inspired by the sea, whether it's the sea interludes, which are one of my favourite pieces of music, or mm-hmm. uh, Noise Flute, mm-hmm. which is all about Noah's flood for uh, yeah. amateur performers to exalt the joy of paired animals. Um, but the reason I'm talking to you is because he wrote um, an operator best in a no, no play called Curlew River. Do we yeah, do we think there's right. a particular reason why he because there is no Curlew River. Curlew River is a is a, is a fictional river. Do we do we know any it's particular reason up, yeah. why he decided to choose the Curlew as the the stimulus for that piece? Well, interestingly, he um, it was originally so it's based on no plays you say, and he saw it. This, this drama when he was in Japan in, in the 1950s, and it was called Sumida River, so it's called Sumidagawa, um, and he wanted to, to make a version of it, um, but couldn't quite work out how to do it, and in the end had the idea to make it kind of East Anglian mm-hmm. and sort of Fenland uh, setting. Um, and then actually William Plumer, who wrote the text for it, who adapted it, came up with the title Curly River quite early on um, in the sort of late 50s. And then Britain had other working titles like Across the River or Crossing the River because it's about somebody that, that crosses a river. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he became quite taken with the Curlew idea and liked it and responded to it. But, but more specifically in, within the score, he, he created this little Curlew sign, which he called a Curlew, which is like a, it's almost like a little bird sign, like a child's, you know, when you just draw a bird just with, with a sort of like an M. Yeah, it's like <laughs> so an, I had wind. it described to me first as um, someone pulling a moon into the air, which there's a far less attractive way than saying a child drawing a bird in the air. But... <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there myself, but now you mention it, I can't not see that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Great. <laughs> um, no, that the um, yes. Yeah, so the, either of those, whatever helps, <laughs> visualize it. Um, and it's it's used in the score, which is um, it's quite an unusual way of of performing it. So rather than a conductor bringing everybody in and the singers and the instrumentalists, it's much more improvised. And so people kind of just they get their music and they just start performing it. And then the curlew is a sign when everybody resynchronizes. So you just keep singing your line and you carry on at you in your own time, your own pace. But the curlew is a moment where you need to wait for everyone else to catch up. 
and everyone has those these little signs. So it's a kind of way of just bringing the the singers and the and the instrumentalists back together again. Here's Sir John Lawton once again describing a more recent countryside walk. As you know, I'm uh, I'm chairman of the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, and and this uh, summer we had a a delegation come up from London specially from the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs from DEFRA. It was a group of young, uh, very nice, uh, highly educated uh, young civil servants from DEFRA who came all the way from London specially, uh, and I don't think any of them had ever been on a moor before. Um, but they, they, they were great, they were game and they were they were they were genuinely interested in what we were doing and it has in, in fact informed government policy about peatland management and so on. So it was you know, it was a success from that point of view and I was I was just basically showing them things like uh, you know like cotton grass uh, and red grouse and so on and they knew that they were interested in cotton grass and and obviously they knew what a grouse was. There were golden plover piping away and they hadn't a clue what a golden plover was. But then I, uh, but I, I explained to them we didn't actually see one we could hear them sure. and then a curlew flew right over us calling and i said curlew and, and and one of them said what's a curlew and and i i was i was sort of shocked saddened and baffled in equal degree these are young uh, civil servants they're well educated they were bright intelligent people and at least one of them didn't know what a curlew was and to uh, to paraphrase D- David Attenborough, uh, that you know what we don't know about, we won't care about. Mm-hmm. And I was, I really was genuinely upset and very puzzled. Well, it, but I explained to them what a curly was, and it's not a criticism of them. They live in London. They've probably never been anywhere near a place where there could be curlies. But I'd like to have thought that at least they'd know what one was. Sure. That's very sad. I wonder if that's a failing of modern education as much as anything else, or just the hyper-urbanisation of the world. I don't know. I think it's urbanisation. I mean, what context would you know what a curlew is? I I actually don't know. I was trying to find this out. There must be poems about curlews, but I'm not not aware of one. Uh, But, you know, know, how do you introduce people to that kind of, of, of charismatic creature if they've not had any chance of seeing it? Well, John, just for you, I've called in the services of a couple of friends. Here's the eminent birder in his own right, Sam West, and Natalie Dormer, who I believe has something to do with mocking jays. Sonnet to the Curlew by Helen Maria Williams Soothed by the murmurs on the sea-beach shore, his dun-grey plumage floating to the gale. The Curlew blends his melancholy wail with those hoarse sounds the rushing waters pour. Like thee, congenial bird, my steps explore the bleak lone sea beach or the rocky dale and shun the orange bower, the myrtle vale, whose gay luxuriance suits my soul no more. I love the ocean's broad expanse when dressed in limpid clearness or when tempests blow, when the smooth currents on its placid breast flow calm as my past moments used to flow, or when its troubled waves refuse to rest and seem the symbol of my present woe. He Reproves the Curlew by W.B. Yeats O Curlew, cry no more in the air, or only to the water in the west, because your crying brings to my mind passion-dimmed eyes and long heavy hair 
that was shaken out over my breast. There is enough evil in the crying of wind. Beautiful. You may remember, back in last December's episode of Trees A Crowd, I asked Richard Benwell to give me his impression of a coot in exchange for my rather dubious kestrel screech. His bird call, being so powerful, nay, emotionally charged, I felt I couldn't miss the chance to ask for his rendition this time of the infamous curlew call. Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? But um, I've had I've had a little bit of practice, strangely, because uh, do you know we're going on a bear hunt? I do know we're going on a bear hunt. Well, my little son um, is is thirteen months now, and he loves we're going on a bear hunt. Uh, and if you look closely uh, in between the squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt page, there are some curlews in there. Uh, and so uh, I've had the odd go. Uh, it usually makes him cry. Uh, so I don't know whether I should share it with your listeners. Go on, let's see if you can make my listeners cry. Give it a go. Well, here we go. Here we go. They they, they sort of build up the, the anticipation, don't they? So they sort of give you a... Then there's a sound of the wind that's keeping you extra cold while your feet are soggy. And then you get another... And it starts to build. That is, and that's what I tell you. That's incredible. I'm so envious of your family. <laughs> story time must be absolutely brilliant. I think if CBB's bedtime stories don't come uh, chasing you down after this, I, there is no justice in this world. Emboldened by Richard's vocal triumph, what better idea than to foolhardily ask every contributor for their curlew calls? Here's Rick Simpson's response. No. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Uh, has anybody else agreed to do, do Ma- Mary gave an incredible one. I won't, I won't make it a competition, but she was fairly spectacular. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting because um, at the cur- one of the curlew festivals, uh, there was a chap, came along with Peter, his name was, and, and he, he had a, the call of a curlew, which he had slowed down 10 times. We then had to imitate that slowed down curlew, and then he speeded up 10 times to find out how close to it sounding like a curlew mm. it was. And many of us did it. And the one that was the closest, the best, was inevitably Mary Colwell. Mary Colwell. <laughs> There's something in that. The curlew sure. whisperer. The curlew whisperer, indeed, yeah. <laughs> well, let's hear that award-winning curlew impression itself. Ladies and gentlemen, Mary Colwell, the queen of the curlew. Curly? Curly? A bit like that. Um, but much, much nicer than that, because that sounds like a strangled mouse. But um, <laughs> very, uh, very beautiful and long trailing note. And it, it, it's just fantastic over a wide horizon with mud and sea. If you were to be talking to a child, what single fact would you tell that child about the curly to try and give them a lifelong fascination for them? I would say the curly's call is the sound of wild places and if curlews are calling that's telling you that the world is all right that it's still got wild and wonderful and wet places so if you hear a curly the world's in good shape. And that was our curly special. 
A massive thank you to Mary, Rick, Jennifer, Lucy, Patrick, David, Amanda, Richard, Chris and John for taking time to talk to me. Hats off to Sam and Nat for their poetry prowess. An extra special thank you to Bella Hardy for writing and composing the original Curlew-inspired piece which kicked off this episode. And an even bigger thank you to Ollie for his gargantuan effort to get this episode edited together in time for today. For further information on anything you heard in today's episode, head along to our website, treesacrowd.fm. Whilst you wait for our next episode, I'd normally suggest you all that heading out to your nearest wetland centre or moorland hide to hear these magnificent birds for yourself would be the best thing to do. But, unfortunately, you'll have to wait a little while longer for the lockdown to be lifted. So, with that in mind... Here's a virtual wildlife excursion for you all. I'll leave you with the voice and recorded sounds of the ever-sonorous Chris Watson, who has helped illustrate this episode so perfectly. So, until next time, this was Trees A Crowd, and this is Chris Watson and his curlew friends. David, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about one of my favourite birds and one of my favourite wildlife sounds, the song and display of a curlew. Because, of course, April is the month of the curlew. In these mornings, well before sunrise, up on the moorlands of Northumberland to the west of here, I live in suburban Newcastle-upon-Tyne, and up on the moors, curlews will have been performing their display flights, gliding low over the sedges and heather. And even before you see these birds, it's the song that really grabs your attention. I think it really is the essence and voice of those wild places in spring. Curlews have far-carrying voices, and in their favourite places, several birds will gather and weave complex patterns across the pale morning sky. Their bubbling songs mixing with those of red grouse, plovers and skylarks in the emerging moorland chorus. I just wish I could get up there and experience that now. <laughs> <laughs>